Hey there, and thank you for letting Bandwidth Coast to Coast invade your ears for the next 60 minutes. There's a speech I reference in this interview whose message is the importance of the obvious, ordinary, take-it-for-granted things. It's in those obvious banalities that a lot gets away with being hidden directly in plain sight, or simply forgotten all about. How many issues have accepted silence and little political will been left to turn into bigger and bigger conundrums? I would submit that our current situation of rationalizing away debate in the name of unity is leaving more issues to fester. Issues like the war on terror, healthcare, voting rights, and have we really even built a healthy economy post the Great Recession, let alone COVID? Where have we gotten a good win in? Why is it that this is the accepted state of affairs? Before knowing why and where to go, it's useful to know what first. What is wrong with our current status quo? I follow the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, quite closely. I follow when she brokered to be voted back in as Speaker in 2018. And I also took notice when a Democrat, Shahid Buttar, was set to face her in the general election. I followed Shahid's campaign from afar, read his policy stances, comments on the political news of the moment. But it wasn't until preparing for this interview that I dove into Shahid the person, the musician, poet, activist, and lawyer. Shahid's been working on calling attention to, and fighting, the ever-increasing set of conundrums we face for years. When going through my research, I came across some writing Shahid's been doing since going back to Obama's early years. Reading Shahid's critique on the war on terror, encryption, his message to law students, then through his poetry, I found that the more I read, the more I found myself cheering along. In order to improve the status quo, I think we need multidimensional individuals who are willing to arise to the occasion. I got a glimpse of what Shahid knows, what he knows not just about the facade that is our government in bad need of reform, but where to find the cracks, how they've grown over the years, how deep it all goes. We talked across a range of topics, but they all kept on this unintended theme. Corporations have gained increasing influence on everything from what food is grown to what laws are written, and policymakers have been complicit in that, as well as many other direct violations of our rights as citizens. I really enjoy talking to them. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. Without further delay, other than the sound of the ocean, Shahid Buttar, congressional candidate for California's 12th district. Thank you very much for uh, coming on. I really appreciate the time. It's my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you said that you're a little more chill after your run. So hopefully that passes off onto me because I'm extremely excited to talk to you. Um, I was really excited when uh, your campaign got back to me and that I've been reading a bunch of your work uh, going back a while, actually, uh, in preparation for this. And it just got got me more excited. So uh, just so we have it, would you mind just introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Shahid Buttar. I'm a congressional candidate in San Francisco. I'm the first Democrat in 30 years. 
to face House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in the general election that's underway now until November 3rd. I'm a civil liberties lawyer and an artist, and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to representing my city in Washington. Awesome. I'm giving you lots of claps over here. Uh, <laughs> so I've been doing this as like an opening question to my guests lately, um, and I'm going to give it to you. So what, uh, what do you do that makes you happy? Playing music. We're playing capoeira. I'm a... Uh, I, I, I'm, I think I'm going to butcher this word, kinesthophile. I'm a lover of motion. So dance, martial arts, both hit my buttons. Um, like when I'm running, I'm usually actually just like training martial arts in the park, you know? And uh, yeah, be, getting in my body is, is a, a source of great relief for me. I grew up as a bookworm and between being a bookworm and an immigrant, I had a tough time fitting in when I was younger and it was musical theater and the, in high school and then later martial arts in my 20s that really helped me um, just get in my body. Yeah, I can resonate with that, actually. Like, I've been playing music for a long time, and it's definitely a very big happy place of mine. Right on. And it's, it's like uh, I actually can think of the markers in my life through music and, like, where I was at with, like, my, my practice. Totally. Um, I can totally relate to that. Well, what kind of music do you play? I play all over the place, but, like, blues and jazz is, like, my roots. And nice. now this year I've, I'm, I dedicate every year to a new skill I'm learning and this okay. year I'm learning Ableton. Um, yeah. Right on. So am I. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> I mean, it's like a lifelong practice. You know, I've been learning Ableton for too damn long, but yeah. Yeah, no, um, I'm right there with you and I'm like now in the thick of it. So uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. I've been getting more into like electronic music. Uh, I got an MPK set up right next to me too. So right on. That, yeah. Nice. Well, it's funny when you ask me what I do for, like for fun in the middle of the night, usually like if I'm awake after 2 a.m., it's Ableton that I'm fiddling with, you know, like, right. yeah. Messing with beats and EQing tracks and finding samples and yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I do now. That's now mm -hmm. my uh, late night, you know, my wife and dog are asleep and I have a couple hours to kill. I'm just going to go, I'm just going to play around. Can totally relate to that. That, that frankly was kind of my dream. Uh, you know, if I had my druthers, I would be an artist for most of my time and I would speak out a lot about politics and, you know, the fact that I'm a congressional candidate and I dabble in art on the side is sort of like an inversion of my, preferences you know like i feel compelled by the circumstances right. to to run for office i would much rather be living my life yeah i can definitely understand that i uh yeah and that's i mean i, I think there's a there's a plato quote that's it's totally eluding me right now the direct phrasing of it but essentially like the punishment for not getting involved in politics is that you end up getting uh governed by your lessers or your inferiors. Mm -hmm. And I think right now is, is quite a call to arms. Um, um, and, and I think that kind of ethos is, is kind of reflected in just talking to you this short bit. Cause I mean, martial arts, like I also, I love martial arts. One of the things about Capoeira I particularly like is it's kind of acrobatic and, and I, I just wasn't live growing up. It, you know, the idea of like cartwheels and flips and stuff like that always seemed kind of fantastical to me. And so to be able to do things with my body that in the past I would have wanted to do, but wouldn't know the first way of how, you know, I just feel very uh, fortunate and, and lucky. And one sort of like, uh, sort of segue there, I mean, a tangent that maybe could be a segue. In 2009, I'd been uh, training Capoeira at that point, just for a couple of years, I think like maybe a year. And uh, I, at one point was working for a San Francisco based nonprofit when I first started training. And it was a startup nonprofit. We were all promised health insurance, but it didn't have its administration together. So I ended up, uh, well, I left that organization to lead another nonprofit called the Bill of Rights Defense Committee. So I just gotten health insurance when I tore my Achilles tendon. Oh my 
And, you know, it's a $15,000 surgery. I couldn't walk for six months. If I didn't have health insurance or if I gotten injured six months before, I would be walking with a limp for the rest of my life. Or I'd be homeless, you know, one or the other. I mean, I don't, you know, you choose between healthcare and rent if you don't have the money, right? And I often think back on that moment for me as a point at which my commitment to universal healthcare, I mean, I was always a, fav- a fan of single payer and favored it. But that was the point where I really realized, uh, you know, but for the grace of whatever one might hold holy go I. And it was, um, yeah, a wake-up call. And I, I know that entirely too many people don't have the insurance. And if they had a similar injury, you know, they're, they're, they're never going to jump or do cartwheels. And, and I'm so grateful every time I have the chance to dance or run or play couple weight or just to be able to do it because for six months I couldn't even walk, you know, and I, it's not lost on me. Yeah, that's, that's lived experience is, is huge. And I think a lot of people take for granted having that chain of careers that have given them like that employer sponsored. Um, and something that I, so like a lot of my friends or like my friends, siblings and things like that, a lot of what I hear now is that they can't afford their deductibles. Right. Some of these deductibles I'm hearing are like seven grand. And I'm like, whoa, like how, like, I, I, like, I don't know how much you make, but I have an idea of how much you make and how could you afford that? Like that is outrageous. Well, and, and why, like if you're paying deductibles as high, what's the point of having a premium in the first place? Right. Right. I mean, it doesn't boggle the mind sometimes that you're paying money for the privilege to pay more money for a set of things that anybody anywhere else in the world gets for free. Right. And, and yet we have the audacity or the ignorance, choose your word here in the United States to brag about being, you know, the leader of the free world. It's a stretch to say we're even in it at all. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we are proud of our rights and our freedoms when we don't even have the same rights as people in these countries that our you know, president denigrates, for instance, I think is just a, a profound irony. Yeah. Rights when it comes to healthcare, at least definitely. That is, that's a great point. Um, and, and at well, that more point, than like, that, just the right to get home without getting shot by a cop. You know, I mean, there's that's, any number of rights we don't have that other people do. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, but at least just to stick on the healthcare thing for one more moment, uh, yeah. you know, at that point, if you have like a $7,000 deductible or something at that point, really what you are doing is you're paying, you're paying into insurance to not get taxed for not having insurance. Right. <laughs> and at that point, I would go again to saying that, you know, our current scheme of Obamacare and, and obviously like there's a tax to it and there's, there shouldn't be like to certain things such as like the right to have health insurance and things like that. But mm-hmm. you know, once again, all that really was, was monopolizing insurance companies, right? Yes. Huge point that you're making there. And it, it begs underscoring the affordable care act was written by a right wing think tank and it was modeled on a proposal implemented in Massachusetts by a Republican governor. And it was adopted by a democratic president with the support of a democratic Congress and it is much more in a massive structural subsidy for the health insurance industry, the private corporate health insurance industry, than it is a lever to expand care. It's not universal health care. It did not include a public option. It absolutely put the profits of health insurance companies before the needs of patients. And it's one reason why premiums go up every year, as do deductibles. And the idea that you're paying more for a service that is less and less comprehensive and that that's been the trajectory every year since the law was established is just simple proof that the companies don't have the public interests at, at, at heart and that this law, frankly, how do I put this? A lot of conservatives will declare their allegiance to the market and they will couch their 
whether it's greed or attitude favoring wealth accumulation in these terms of favoring a market. But the ACA isn't even that. Mm. It's, it leans on the scale of a market to skew it in favor of insurance companies against the voting public. And I've, I, it's one of the reasons why I'm so dedicated to Medicare for All is that we absolutely need to have a system where cost is not a barrier. As long as cost is a barrier to care, especially in the middle of a contagious, virulent pandemic, we are just ducking into the punch of it. We, we are allowing unnecessary threat vectors to public health to be created. And, and it's just a tool of public policy. That is a policy choice that is literally driving Americans into our graves. Yeah. And I, and I think some of the points there that I would like to kind of go with too is, you know, a pandemic has shown that public health is a national security issue, right? And, and I would even say that it's not even a stretch that some of the uh, civil, civil disobedience and just overall tenuous nature that we are feeling right now and having it to the point of it is, is because of the economic fallout from said pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Which no all question. of that, once again, to the ACA, through the you know, economic disparities, I would say that COVID is just advancing trajectories we were already on. All true things. Yeah, we've had longstanding inequities in care uh, and the pandemic has, has magnified them. At the same time, I mean, you know, not to be too glib about it, under the preceding era, even with the longstanding inequities, plenty of people enjoyed a privilege that they have since lost. You know, like COVID isn't just striking people that were at risk before. Um, you know, uh, wealthy people are passing away too. You know, Herman Cain comes to mind. Um, it, it doesn't discriminate. It does, dis- you know, the, the access to care is discriminated. Again, that's the policy choice. But I just want to push back on the insinuate or the, the potential idea that people of privilege can escape the pandemic, like inevitably, because it's contagious and because it's virulent. Uh, if anybody has it, the rest of us are at risk. It's exactly why we all have an interest. We all share an interest in making sure that everybody can get the care and the medicine that they need. Uh, I, I often describe this commitment to for-profit corporate healthcare as predatory and in the time before the pandemic as a vicious policy or a brutal policy. Um, yeah, I, I, when I feel the need to try to help people laugh because I often share very grim news, you know, I'll, I'll remind people that uh, it's a policy that one might think of as barbaric, except that that's unfair to Northern European Germanic tribes that did in fact treat themselves better uh, than we do in the United States. So it's not even barbaric. But today, during a pandemic, it's just idiotic. It's not just brutal. It's not just vicious. It's not just not even barbaric. It's just senselessly stupid to, to allow cost to be a barrier to care. We, why would we do that with doctors when we don't with the fire department? If your house is on fire, nobody asks the fire department to check your bank balance before they put out the fire because we don't want the whole block to burn down. Well, infection in an age of pandemic is kind of like that. It's, it's very directly analogous to that. And so the idea that we're forcing people to, to pay for their care and knowing that so many people can't, it is just, again, it's senseless and we can do better than that. Yeah. And even if, even if you, we, were, we were to allow and, and encourage a more employer-based option and somehow encourage you know, avenues for jobs, we're seeing you know, 800,000 people a week now losing their jobs with the economic disparity from this. So like, even right. that isn't really even that great of a, an option. Um, but furthermore, I think the point you were making earlier when I mentioned the, the ACA was, you know, it was written from corporate sponsors for their interests. 
And that broadly speaking, I think it touches upon a lot of the issues that we just kind of displayed it being connected, being, you know, economic disparities, uh, corporate, you know, corporate welfare, essentially, right. And corporate laws um, and kind of what comes in that. And to take that a little bit further. So I was reading some of your articles and I realized that you've been writing actively on activism issues for quite some time. And some of them I thought were really interesting at both exposing issues that were more in the zeitgeist then, but should still be now. Um, and like other dimensions of the same problem. So for example, national security. And I'm curious to see what you found. Yeah. I have been writing for a long time. Thanks for exploring it. No, I was, I was really refreshed. Like I was, it got me more geek to talk to you. So um, there's this the article title is leaving cards on the counter terror table. Yes. Ways to better wage war on the war on terror. No one ever talks about this piece. And I think it's, it's among the more important things I've ever written. I think and it's, yeah. Thank you was, for finding I was cheering you along, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to directly quote you. Cause it's, it's, I couldn't do it better myself. So you said, it's not quote our freedoms that quote they hate, but rather our weapons and our longstanding penchant of giving them to regimes that deny freedoms and oppress their own people. You then go on to cite Alan Greenspan, then chairman of the Fed, um, in which he openly says that the Iraq, uh, and he says this in 2003, mm -hmm. the war in Iraq was being motivated by oil stability. And then you go on uh, to segue into talking about defense purchases of arms being a form of corporate welfare. Um, so you wrote this in 2011, and defense spending is now a bipartisan agreement and every, every major spending, or actually, how should I put this, continuing resolution, because we no longer have budgets right. that have been passed, hasn't changed. Has, has any of this changed? Has this corporate welfare in another means changed? It has grown worse. That's the only way it's changed. You know, this spring, Nancy Pelosi and the corporate Democratic Party that she leads signed off on our criminal president getting three quarters of a trillion dollars for the Department of So-Called Defense in one year alone. There's never in the history of our species been an allocation like that for anything, <clears throat> let alone weapons to a aspiring tyrant. And this is after the impeachment process. So how a congressional leader can initiate an impeachment process to try to hold accountable the aspiring tyrant and then turn around and not only expand <clears throat> his surveillance powers, as they also did separately, but then to hand him a $740 billion check. And let's, you know, it's, it's even worse than that might sound because, you know, as you noted a few minutes ago, the pandemic is a national security issue. Can't fight that with the Defense Department. We have other national security issues. How about the climate catastrophe? It's burning the entire state of California. Houston just got hit with two hurricanes at once. There are inland hurricanes and uh, Oklahoma, I believe it was, you know, catastrophic flooding in the Southeast. You can't fight that with the Defense Department. Uh, you know, well, how about the continuity of the Republic and the need to ensure that an election happens? Well, that's the post office is the national security agency there that's most implicated. You can't fight that with the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, the Marines. So why are we spending $740 billion on a set of tools that can't possibly respond to any of our top three national security threats. We do have real threats. Medicare for all would respond to one of them. Saving the post office would respond to one of them. The Green New Deal would respond to one of them. The Defense Department can't respond to any of them. So why is it, why are all our tax dollars and our federal resources being sucked into the black hole of the military industrial complex, noting particularly that its creator warned us about it? You know, this is another theme in my writing that comes up. It's just the, this, the, the, preposterousness of an entire political culture 
just losing sight of its own history and not like long distant history. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, it was two generations. And it was on television, national television at the birth of the medium and how an entire body of 535 members of Congress can go to work every day as if the creator of the military industrial complex didn't give them the warning in broad daylight heard by millions of people. It's almost as if we've elected the most ignorant among us to do this work. You're reminding me of the Plato quote that you were paraphrasing a little while ago. Yeah. And, and I have a, I have one response to your question. Why um, could it be that I can't buy shares of the green new deal? Like I can buy shares of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. Indeed. I think you nailed it. The irony though, frankly, is that we, we can all buy shares in companies that could benefit from the green new deal. There are tremendous opportunities in the green new deal. The green new deal, frankly, would be an engine. So would Medicare for all, both of them, are economically generative policies. Medicare for all, because it would basically liberate any number of people to have more labor mobility, to pursue entrepreneurial choices because one of their basic needs would be addressed instead of only available through the marketplace. It would also, at the same time, Medicare for all would relieve the leading expense item for most major companies. So it would enable a huge job creation boom. The Green New Deal, similarly, I mean, the visions for a federal jobs guarantee and if the, I, ultimately, if we can, instead of spending money on missiles and weapons and profits for Raytheon, instead to spend that money on putting a generation to work that's seeking opportunities, and frankly, that we need work done. I, I, I think at the moment, you know, one thing that comes to mind that even our criminal president has acknowledged is the opportunity in the context of our national forests on the West Coast to to do different kinds of forest management techniques. And I'm particularly a fan of replicating indigenous forest management techniques. And that's going to take a ton of people. The market can't mobilize those resources. There's no profit motive in it, but the Green New Deal could. And how, how good is it going to be for our state when it doesn't burn down next year, right? I mean, the costs are incalculable. The costs of inaction and, and the current inertia are incalculable. And people pretend that we can't afford the Green New Deal. We can't afford not to embrace the Green New Deal. Yeah, I agree with that. Um... So I had uh, Ron Good. He's the chairman of the North Fork Mono Tribe uh, okay. podcast, and okay. uh, he actually—I can give you some numbers here. He told me to that only five percent of California meadows are healthy, and he also said that something around eighty to ninety percent of the forest is canopy, where pre nineteen or pre eighteen forty it was forty percent, and that's mostly mm-hmm. because the tribes were heavily managing the land. Right. Um, and he said it costs about a hundred thousand dollars to uh, fix every meadow. So I did the, a rough math. It's like 1.2 billion in order uh, by his rough math to do that. Mm-hmm. And the amount of people that we need to employ, like to your point, would be would be a lot. And then the second order effects of having healthy forests, healthy wildlife, healthy ecosystems is huge. Um, but I think the kind of the the tenor of a lot of what you were saying, I think, is that the market is really good at doing something and finding some way of doing it, but it's not good at figuring out how much something that you can't calculate. And also being told what to do, right? So like the market's not going to be able to calculate, like there's not going to be any way of being able to price in like, oh, if we do all these green new deal and we start all these, these, these companies, what innovation is going to come from that? Cause it's going to have to come from that, right? We're going to have to find more efficient ways of doing just about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be a huge engine of prosperity. All the engineering right. projects mm-hmm. are going to- Companies to your point of like getting into a startup at the right time at the ground right. level or- you know, getting trained by a startup again, you know, coming in or being able to buy into a a company like, you know, 
around 2008, there was a lot of solar companies that were going up, right? They right. Like that again, but across pretty much everything that you touch, which would be wild. Um, but it's hard to, it's hard to price that all in. So I feel like the most people's knee jerk reactions, especially in this kind of, uh, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to give an analogy and it's going to, it's going to finish my thoughts. So hold hang with me. Okay. David Foster Wallace is a great author and he has this great speech called this is water. And he starts the speech by saying this, I'm going to swear in it differently though. So he says, uh, he goes, there's two young fish swimming along when an older fish swims by and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two fish swim along a little bit further. And the one younger fish says to the other, the fuck is water? (laughs) And the point of the story is to say, you know, the most obvious things are the ones that usually go unnoticed, Right. right? Like fish swimming in water. And I would say, what I just said with the way that kind of capitalism has trouble pricing things in that can't see is that our thinking yes. is a corporate mindset. And I think that it is such a hard way to even notice the things like saying like, ah, but what's it going to cost or what's it going to do? A lot yeah. of that, ha- you have to step out of that. And I think it's very obvious. And to go further on to some of your writing, you said something about farm subsidies that I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. how they're a source of geopolitical tension, tension. And you said when the U.S. grain is dumped on foreign markets at least less than the cost of local production, the ultimate effect is to drive small farmers in those countries out of the market, leaving their countries to be dependent on U.S. grain. And then it goes further to say agriculture, agriculture indicates that 10% of the recipients or I'm sorry, 10% of the recipients receive 66% of the payments, while 80% of the producers get just 16% of all the subsidies. One of the challenges in terms of rationalizing, especially the agricultural subsidies, is the structural overrepresentation of rural states in the Senate. And so senators from particularly Midwestern sort of like, you know, farm belt states have been uh, an impediment to rationalization here. Now, one of the ironies is, and this is why that the closing statistic that you cited about the distribution of the subsidies is so important, because they're not subsidies to people. They're subsidies to corporations. They're yet another example of corporate welfare, not unlike the weapons contracts. And just like the weapons contracts, they engineer instability. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of people forget that we do, in fact, produce enough food to feed every human being on this planet. And we choose to feed a lot of it to animals. And, you know, I I don't meet an entirely plant-based diet. I certainly favor one. And, you know, our agricultural system also could be better uh, oriented to meet the needs of people instead of the profits of producers. Factory farms here are especially pernicious. So just to remix a couple parts of the stuff I didn't know about at the time I wrote that article, uh, I discovered just this year that over the history of California, our state, especially the Central Valley, has had recurring catastrophic floods on the order of like every 150 years and like severe floods that will inundate the entire central valley and at the moment because there's so many concentrated animal feeding operations across the central valley if that happened we would have something like a 1000 mile lake of animal fecal matter floating in the central valley and you know the risk to public health is profound and even setting aside the flooding risk in California, you know, when you have concentrated animal feeding operations, they're necessarily vectors for likely disease transmission from animals to people. The COVID virus came from a similar dynamic, that zoonotic, uh, zoonotic disease transmission. And so, you know, factory farms are predisposed to it. And, and even setting aside 
what, and I've heard other people wax more eloquent about this than me, but the just profound misery and suffering in, you know, you could, people look at this different ways, but especially among mammals, uh, it's just absolutely gruesome. And, uh, you know, that's another area where our, our agricultural subsidies, frankly, are just ignorant. They ignore the reality. They ignore the impacts. Uh, and, and maybe they ignore the externalities. I want to step back and just circle around that word. You were describing all the ways in which the uh, you know, market can't internalize in the price equation, the impacts of seemingly private transactions. You know, every time we have a fossil fuel producer contract with someone to deliver oil, they act as if only the producer and the buyer's interests are implicated, except at the end of the day, we know that they're stealing from the future and that we're all going to have to pay the cost because they're spitting it into the atmosphere. But the future and the rest of us don't get to participate in that price equation. And that's one of the failures of the market is by allowing people, uh, allowing these transactions that have profound public consequences without those consequences being factored into the supply demand equation. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's anybody's fault, uh, but it's just led us to make some really stupid decisions. And, and I would like us to make some better decisions that will keep more people alive. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I had no idea about that uh, flood risk. Um, I did know about the 150 floods. I didn't know about that much concentrated animal stock. That's uh, quite alarming. I, so I'm from, I'm from Illinois. I live in San Diego, but I'm from Illinois. And I, I spent know, 10 years in Chicago in the 90s. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's where I'm from. I, I actually have uh, one of your speeches to the uh, law school. I think it was a speech. It reads like a speech. Um, yeah, I have. I, I actually read that too, and I have some things out of it too. Um, but anyway, uh, those are good pieces out of my body of work to draw out. Thanks for they, they caught my eye. Um, I uh, oh, I, I know like pig farms there. They have they'll have like lakes of the the fecal matter right and it and it's horrible smelling you can smell them from quite some distance away Mm -hmm. Um, and you're not like to your point uh you touched upon you're not allowed to actually because of ag gag laws agriculture gag laws you're actually not allowed to take videos and really even talk about the horrors of them which i think is is uh really an awful thing in and of itself um but i i think this this kind of corporate mindset of so much going to so little like 10 percent uh, get 66% of all of it. That's crazy. Um, and so, so the derecho, the inland, uh, hurricane was in Iowa, right? Yeah. And Iowa, Iowa, like that gets a lot of corn subsidies and, and like, and the like. Um, but I never had thought that a lot of those subsidies and a lot of the subsidies that were coming from, you know, the loss of crop yields and things like that are going to like a, a smaller and smaller subset. Like I know the death of the family farm is something that has been coming on, but after research, after reading that and then further researching, I didn't realize how far it had kind of gone off the cliff already. Oh yeah. Corporate consolidation across the Midwest and the South has really, it's, it's part of why we're in this mess because the, the very same Republican senators who represent those States aren't answering to family farmers. They're answering to corporate agribusiness and corporate agribusiness, just like the corporate weapons manufacturers or the corporate health insurance companies, you know, they have their own industrial interests. And and ultimately, that's why we see policies come out of Congress that reflect government, not for of and by the people, but government for of and by capital. Right, right. Which leads into, you know, uh, finance reform. I mean, election reform like that needs to definitely happen. Um, you know, just like a, a sidebar of like, I, I read a fair amount of your work coming, you know, coming into this mostly because I was finding it so enjoyable to be perfectly honest. I wouldn't have read so thoroughly if I wasn't enjoying what I was reading. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I, I, I had this thought multiple times and my wife asked me, you know, like how it was going and the, the thought that came to mind, and I wanted to make sure I said it before I forgot, which is I now understand why Speaker Pelosi will not debate you. <laughs> she would certainly be embarrassed. I mean, I, I appreciate that. And I, you know, I don't want to brag and it's not any genius of mine. It's just, I know the truth too well. And it hasn't been reported. You know, reporters have been giving her softball questions for 20 years. She hasn't debated anyone since Ronald Reagan was the president, which is just absurd to me. And, and that's how she gets away with her voting record that nobody knows about. You know, the district sends her back to Congress every two years in spite of her active support for conservative interests. Republicans construct an image of her as if she's some lion of the left, which frankly serves conservative interests. And the gross part is that so many Democrats fall for the ruse. And, and you're absolutely right. I think the reason she can't debate me without losing, you know, without her career ending is that her record can't withstand scrutiny. And one of the, for me, the points of greatest disappointment in this process is just how absolutely complicit the press has been, you know, in a, in a democracy with a robust free press, if incumbents don't debate, the press calls them out. Or someone asks them hard questions. Why don't you debate your opponent? What are you trying to hide? You know, the district's interested in why you call the Green New Deal, the Green New, the Green New Deal, the Green New Dream or whatever. The district's interested in why you don't bring Medicare for all to the House floor for the vote. The district's interested in why you're extending the tyrant's surveillance powers or giving him world historically unprecedented military budgets. But nobody asks her those questions. <laughs> and, and on the rare occasion that she gets a question that demonstrates any independence at all, like Wolf Blitzer on CNN the other day, you know, she basically melts down and, and has a tirade, not unlike the way our criminal president responds to interlocutors. And, you know, I just feel like we deserve certainly better than that. People should answer questions from the press and the press should ask hard questions. When the press isn't asking hard questions, it, it should unnerve us all because frankly, that is as much a threat to elections and their legitimacy as computers being hacked or foreign state intelligence actors leaning on the scale and buying ads or Republican thugs intimidating voters. When the press doesn't show up for work, it does beg the question as to whether or not we can safely describe our elections as free or fair. Uh, and, you know, in spite of that, I'm certainly, you know, running the strongest campaign that we can without a press engaged to do the work that the fourth estate is supposed to and doing everything we can to inform and educate voters that we have an alternative for the first time in 30 years to send a new voice to Congress. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I found my theme. So uh, I, I think that in, it's definitely not fair. I don't think we have, like, as far as we have free and fair elections, we certainly don't have fair elections. I mean, we have the, the amount of corporate inf influence. There's no way that we do. Um, and which is going to lead me to the next point. Um, so do we have free elections? I think in some places we do uh, in, the, in, in America, but I mean, in other places, probably not because of how much they're really actively trying to, make it difficult for people to vote, especially oh, yeah. in certain areas. And obviously it's of certain demographics, um, which you actually talk about section five in the voting rights and something else that I read of yours, which we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the corporate consolidation of everything is really what has been the past 20 years, I would say. Like yeah. it definitely was happening more, but I would say it ramped up uh, since 2001 and kind of the, the shift in the new world order and all of that. Um, and as far as like the fourth estate, like it is definitely complicit and it's definitely been taken over and consolidated in all the same ways we were talking about, 
you know, agriculture and, and, you know, uh, national security or, you know, you name it. Um, like I'm, I'm a big fan of Noam Chomsky and, you know, his talking about how the media, you know, how they use flack and access and all of this to really buy, buy access and buy, you know, ability to talk about what they do talk about. Don't talk about like, uh, they're, they're it's manufactured consent. I think that's his term, isn't it? I'm, manufacturing I'm, I'm, consent. Yes. I think that's, yeah, right. I, I think of him as the progenitor of that idea and I, I hear you describing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, definitely. And he also said, you know, in America, there's only one uh, party, the corporate party of which we have two factions, the Democrats and the Republicans. Yep. Um, and, and I don't think that, I don't think a truer thing could be said. And I, I definitely see it in your race. Um, but it also in all of the issues that you've been writing about and we're talking about so far. Thank you. Yeah, I've been alarmed by that. It hasn't always been the case, right? I mean, until say the early 90s, there was a labor party in the United States and its identity shifted, you know, since 68, it had been the Democrats. But, you know, starting in the 90s, under the administration of Bill Clinton, the Democrats perceived an opportunity in moving to the right to compete for corporate fundraising. And that was a tactical victory but a grand strategic loss because it left entire regions, entire zones of the electoral landscape just entirely unrepresented. It's one reason that so many Americans don't vote today because there's just no one running to represent them. It's one reason we have bipartisan consensus on so many stupid policies because there's nobody in Congress to advocate on behalf of we the people of the United States because they're all sent there by their corporate donors to pursue their interests instead of their constituents. Um, You know, this this pattern of Democrats fueling the rise of conservatism because they perceive whether it's themselves as weak on national security. So they have to outflank the Republicans and be even more oorah. So when the rare occasion, you know, maybe the one thing that this criminal president has done that I could support was to try to pull back the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. And it's the one time that Democrats actually showed up to make their otherwise rhetorical resistance real. And they kept us in a war that we've been in for 20 years. Uh, and, and how Democrats get away with outflanking Trump on the right, it's just absurd to me. And, and then they'll still, they still have the audacity to run to their donors and say, give us money because there's this aspiring fascist in Washington. And yes, he is an aspiring fascist, but the Democrats pave his path entirely. And not just, I don't even mean that like, in the abstract, I mean, even directly, there's you know, news reports suggest that it was, we were just talking about Bill Clinton's administration moving the party to the right. It was Bill Clinton who encouraged Donald Trump to run for the presidency. And the Clinton campaign was suggesting that media outlets cover him because they thought that was going to be a good idea. It was going to help them. And we saw how well that turned out. Uh, you know, the, our, our supposed leaders, particularly in the Democratic Party, have proven time and time again that frankly, they have no idea what they're doing. People pretend that Nancy Pelosi is playing four-dimensional chess. She's basically playing like one-dimensional checkers and she's getting outflanked at every opportunity. And that's charitable because it presumes that she is at least trying to mount resistance that she's failing to produce. There's a whole other analysis that would suggest that she's more motivated by her class interests than her partisan ones, which would suggest that she's not playing on the same team as the rest of us at all. And that also would unfortunately fit too many facts from choosing to fund Donald Trump's concentration camps to the military budget we were talking about, the PAYGO rules, welcoming Juan Guaido to Washington, punching down at the squad, I could go on. You know, her record reveals 
effectively the voice of a centrist Republican leading the Democratic Party. And that is a profound disservice, not just to the values of the party and the needs of our communities, but I dare say democracy writ large. Yeah, without doubt. Yeah, I, you know, Bill Clinton made a tactical decision to go to the right on corporate interests and to make the law and order play and also to to reform welfare. Like that was his thing, right? And that's how he, you know, got the White House and, you know, coming from Arkansas and that was really their play and it worked very well for them. And, you know, uh, and some of your critiques of Obama too, which I thought were excellent. Uh, you know, the economist calls him the grand or the great moderate. And I think that that's a way better analogy of him, right? Like he's down the line in the middle on pretty much everything, if not a little right. And by today's, today's standards, he's definitely a little right. Oh yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thing that frustrates me so much about the Democratic Party, um, and I, I, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, um, I'm, I'm, I refuse to have any <laughs> stance on any of that, um, is the fact that they, I, see, here's the thing, I, don't, I think they are playing four-dimensional t- chess, and they're playing four-dimensional chess while, you said earlier- Against you, us, against we yeah, the people. Yes, and then right. you, said that, you said earlier that they're either ignorant, we're electing people who are ignorant, and I would say that they are, the world is a stage, and they've chosen their character. And yep. I, I think that that's really what they're doing. And maybe they are playing four-dimensional chess, but they're doing it to, to serve their own interests. And I'll, I'll find the article and I'll post it when I post this episode. But there was a study that was done and I was reading it around 2016 about how politicians are more closely related ideologically to their donors than they are to their constituents. Mm-hmm. So just follow the money, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's very revealing. It's, it's one reason with Pelosi that I feel such a, uh, urgent need to win a new voice for our city because she doesn't answer to local voters or our values. You know, when we were, when it was Bush in office and so many of us were in the streets marching and shutting down the city to try to stop the war, she was taking impeachment off the table, funding his wars, uh, you know, insulating his CIA from accountability for torture. When it was Barack Obama uh, cracking down on the press and accelerating deportations. You know, she wasn't fighting for our community's interests then. And, and under Trump, as he's denigrating people from Latin American countries uh, in horrible terms and deriding immigrants in all the various places we came from, you know, she, she settles for words while at every point that she actually has institutional authority, resigning it or, or using it in some way to actively enable him. And that is exactly, I mean, one way in which this has happened that she hasn't frankly taken any or borne any accountability for is the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to serve on the Supreme Court. Speaker Pelosi could have blocked the Senate from considering the nomination at all if she either impeached the president, as she should have done for any number of reasons last year and other reasons that have emerged since, like lying to the public or inciting violence or human rights abuses or putting public health at risk or enriching himself at public expense. None of that was in the charade that she pursued a year ago. So she could have proceed, proceeded with any of those articles of impeachment, which are long overdue, entirely legitimate, frankly, crucial to at least seek the vindication of, if not to invite the same criminality from future presidents. And it would have kept the nomination hearings from proceeding. But the only person in the country who could have stopped them, Nancy Pelosi, chose not to. And you know, that's another area where just the press, I feel like has failed so miserably because that's a story. Someone should report on that. I mean, I, I, I never, I never thought that I, that's a really good point. I have had the thought 
I've had this thought multiple times when it comes to issues on the Supreme Court too, where it's like, oh, okay, that they overruled that. You know, you can write another law, right? You know, or like you can you can you can keep pushing things, right? Like you know that, right? They just told you where the holes were in that. It depends, frankly. I mean, it, it's true if it's a matter of statutory interpretation, but the court also rules on constitutional right. questions. And those you can't simply legislate around that. That does require amendments, which are a higher procedural threshold. But yes, right, right, right. plenty of ways to, to thoughtfully- in the Interpretation of it, but yes. Okay, yeah. that, that's a very good distinction. Leave it to the lawyer to correct that. Thank you. <laughs> um, but that's a really good point about about the Supreme Court nominee, because quite frankly, like I keep, I worry about what I worry about Trump. I'm not going to say I don't worry about Trump, but I worry more about what comes after Trump, right? And right. what we're allowing and the cultural norms that we're letting erode. And when it comes to her nomination, um, politically, she's very, she's perfect politically, right? But as far as like record and fitness, let alone timing, uh, it's, there's a lot of questions that are that should be begged, and quite frankly, the pressure that nobody is putting on on Speaker Pelosi to to do exactly what you just said, which I hadn't even thought of, is brilliant. Like that, that should be what we were doing. Like it, it, the Democrats circulated a memo with across the party two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. The Intercept covered it, and impeachment was one of at least I think it was ten different ways that the nomination hearings could have been delayed. And what the reason it didn't proceed is that the only person who can effectuate that particular strategy is the Speaker of the House. And at every point that an executive has required accountability, she has frankly resigned the opportunity to pursue it. Even when she impeached Donald Trump, she limited the process to the weakest charge. And you know that's just part, again, of, of the question is, is the Speaker uh, ineffective? Or is the speaker entirely too effective at, at pursuing her class interests rather than her partisan ones? Right. And, and how much courage do they have? Because, I mean, like, I can tell from talking to you and even just getting your hat in this ring, that required a lot of courage, right? And I think that our lawmakers and our states are people that are representing us, right, that have ability to make laws that can increase our livelihood, change our livelihood, completely change our way of life, because that is what Congress has the power to do should be those that are courageous and virtuous. And it, it doesn't seem like her record goes up to that whatsoever. And in this instance alone, let alone the, you know, 30 years of uh, examples. Um, so as we're on this thought of rhetoric, words, and uh, their hollowness, I want to ask you a question about the Patriot Act. Yeah. Um, so one you, of my favorite pieces of legislation. You know, I actually had this, I said this on one of the first episode, uh, our first interview of this, of the series. And it was, uh, it's not that I enjoy studying the Patriot Act. It's also like I don't enjoy flossing, but I think it's necessary. Um, <laughs> so, okay, you, read, you, you said something about it that I, I once again, a, a lawyer could probably be the only one that finds something like this. And I hadn't, it was, it's a, a hole in my looking over the Patriot Act. And it's, I'm going to quote you. If the government finds that you're talking with the wrong people, you have no right to defend that you never intended to support violence or that no violence occurred or was encouraged. Um, so <laughs> the gross first amendment problems, with the Patriot Act, I had no idea about. And then you go on to, to talk about uh, Holder versus humanitarian law project mm. in which the humanitarian law project was working with the Kurdish workers party, which the Kurdish workers party at the time were dubbed a terrorist organization or a pseudo terrorist organization, something along those lines. They had probably done violent acts, but what the humanitarian law project was trying to do was get them to speak and talk about issues as opposed to be violent about them. And that that then uh, got them in this this clause, the Patriot Act. 
So I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. And then if you can expand on if things like that have been changed or just gotten worse. Right. What you're talking about, there are uh, prosecutions for material support of terrorism and material support in the context of the humanitarian law project was found to adhere when a nonprofit was trying to encourage conflict resolution to de-escalate conflict because the participants in the workshops included militants, according to the U.S. government, that's facilitating terrorism. And it's so, that's another example of just idiotic policy. What sense does it make to criminalize efforts to de-escalate conflict? But those, we should be encouraging efforts to de-escalate conflict, not criminalizing them. But we're so interested, or the national security interest agencies are so interested in the appearance of effectiveness that they're more interested just in winning convictions, whether or not those convictions in any way advance national security. There is another case in the same vein, another material support for a prosecution case uh, against, this was in the First Circuit, Boston, and the defendant's name was uh, Tarek Mahana, uh, or Mahana, uh, M-E-H-A-N-A, I think. And he, he, he was an academic who was translating materials for public discussion. And that was decided to be material support for terrorism. So if you can't encourage conflict de-resolution and you can't translate texts without being held liable by the government for facilitating terrorism, it just begs the question, what are we supposed to do about these issues? And it seems that the government's policy is all we are allowed to do is fight. We can't talk, we can't translate, uh, we can't try to de-escalate. And, and the idea that the de-escalating or talking or translating is classified as if it was facilitating terrorism, I think is a reflection not just of idiocy, but frankly, corruption, because that insulates the system from the kind of accountability that we all frankly need it to have. Yeah, uh, I, hadn't, I had that translation case. That's crazy. That is a flat violation of First Amendment rights. And that was exactly the argument. It was a First Amendment defense, and the court, the courts, you know, basically over, overruled it. It was the the humanitarian law project was the was the sort of high watermark or low watermark of these cases at the time. The Mahana case came after I wrote that article, so that, that's why I raise it because it got even worse than it was at the time that I wrote that piece. Wow, that is unfortunate to hear. And then if you kind of like, if you team that thought with the rulings or the the policy of drone strikes. And how essentially, if you're a, a military-aged male, regardless, and you're hanging out with other military-aged males in some perceived area of geolocation that says this is of a terrorist holding, drone strikes are, are all good. That's exactly how it, a 16, then 16-year-old 16 U.S. citizen born in the U.S. was killed by a drone strike mm -hmm. uh, because his father was somebody in which the U.S. government had an interest. And this was, in the case of Anwar Alalaki and his son, are so uh, revealing because this was a father and son pair, U.S. citizens. They were seeking vindication in the U.S. courts of their right to trial at the time that they were you know, uh, obliterated by a flying robotic assassin robot halfway around the world from where its pilot was. And the idea, and, and, and just to be clear, the thing that he was killed for were words. Now, they were insightful words, like words that incited violence. And so maybe there's an issue there that's certainly legitimate for a court to discern. But to just assassinate people based on their words does fly in the direct face of a little thing called the Constitution that we adopted when we created the Republic. And the idea that we're killing people based on their parents' words, 
like we're into some other zone there, you know, and that's like, that's not in any way defensible in any system of law. Uh, and that's, that's national policy. And it, and you know, it was the first thing they said, the first thing they wrote down was that's got everybody to be able to talk, speak to whoever you want, speak whatever you want. That was the first, the first, uh, law enshrined, right? The first amendment. It's, it's so frustrating to hear that. Honestly, uh, that is, it's, uh, thoughts are escaping me right now. I didn't, I didn't realize the details quite of that case. And that is, that's out, outrageous and, uh, it's really egregious, but thank you for writing all that you have written and, you know, for running and get it into the fray. Like this has obviously been, I would imagine very hard and a very <laughs> difficult journey going up against somebody of the megalith themselves. It is so, intense. Yeah. So thank you for all of your work. Um, I know that we're right up at time. Thank you for squeezing me into your schedule. Uh, Maybe we can wrap in one second. Is there anything else before I just kind of stop and we can talk for one more second uh, that you wanted to say before we shut it off? I appreciate you asking. Maybe I just invite your listeners to check out our campaign website at shawhidforchange.us and would especially encourage people to sign up to volunteer. Uh, If you like what you heard and you want to put gas in our tank, donate. Uh, and I certainly would invite votes from anybody in the 12th Congressional District of California. I'm looking forward to representing our city in Washington. Awesome. Well, we're all rooting for you. Thank you very much. Right on. Good to connect with you, John. Thanks for the, thanks for the interview.